Hey folks, this is Anatoly from Solana, and you're in the Solana podcast. And today we have Mayer and Ryzen from Chorus One who will be sharing with us what they've been building for Solana and honestly for everybody in the space. Uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I'm super excited about your project. Can you guys actually kind of first intro yourselves and like what is Chorus One and how did you end up starting Stronggate? So I can I can go first. Um, so Chorus One is essentially a a validator on multiple proof of stake networks. We're currently live on Solana, Cosmos Hub, Terra, uh, Loom, and Kava. So five networks. We ended up uh, so we started Chorus One two years back. So I, I'm one of the co-founders of Chorus One, and we started started building validators around two years back because we felt that validators are key to the governance and future success of, uh, of these decentralized systems. So we've invested a lot of energy into having really great infrastructure on our side for our validator operations. And the current project Stronggate is just, is born up out of our desire to have a great Solana validator, not just for ourselves, but for all of the other validators so that we have a powerful network. Cool. I think Ryzen's been working on Stronggate, right? Uh, do, do you kind of want to like intro what the project is? Yeah, of course, yeah. So basically the idea is uh, we want to build a high availability solution that is capable of being optimized for the blockchain that it's targeting. So I guess the way to describe this is if you visualize a normal HA setup, so uh, high availability, you want to have multiple nodes that can handle the network that you're targeting. So you, I guess what most people will be used to is a web server, right? If you want to handle web requests, you want to run more than one server. So if one of them fails, another one will handle the requests. That's a little bit more difficult with blockchain because especially with proof of stake networks, if you have more than one node that's running at the same time, you're usually susceptible to some kind of punishment for doing so. So if you so, want to have high, oh, sorry. But, so what is that punishment? Like what, what, actually, what do actually validators do? <laughs> well, that's a good point. So if you want to validate on a network, usually you're processing the transactions that go through. You're, you're voting on the blocks that get added to the network. So with any network that's proof of stake, you have this set of validators who are responsible for suggesting which transactions get appended. And you want to trust as much as possible that this network is doing the right thing. To do this effectively, you want to make sure that these validators actually don't lie or don't take some kind of decision that goes against the network. So the idea behind slashing is if one of these validators tries to trick the network or lie in some way or undo a transaction or something similar to this, you punish them by taking away the stake that they've invested in the network. So the idea behind the stake is you put money down up front. And if, if you do do these bad, bad behaviors, then that money is then cut in some way. So actually it's a good question. I don't really know what Solana's punishments are right now. Yeah. So, um, we're, I mean, we've talked about getting to 100% slashing eventually. And, and this kind of gets to the core of like this like Byzantine fault tolerance papers that were written in the 70s. Like, what is that? What is Byzantine fault tolerance? It means that, at least to me, that there's no possible way to crash the system. You know, and that includes attack vectors that are human attack vectors. You guys like falling asleep you know, or <laughs> or just quitting and going surfing, right? And the, in the computer's failing. 
and from malicious attack vectors where somebody finds a flaw in like the AWS instance that you're running and exploits it and is able to take over the key. Um, or an employee at AWS knows that you're running a Solana validator in a specific instance and, and, and steals those keys that way. Um, so really like true Byzantine fault tolerance covers all of these attack vectors. And like, from my perspective, I think philosophically, we couldn't have BFD systems without cryptocurrency because the, the financial stake is what covers all these human attack vectors as well. Like if, if you guys, right, like when, when we talk about slashing, it means that you guys will be punished potentially with financial penalties that could be the 100% of what you guys have put into the network, right? And all the customers that you've acquired that you are custodians of will also get slashed. So there's like a huge economic risk for any kind of uh, malfeasance from your part. Um, despite all of that, if more than a third of the network is hacked or somehow screws up, the whole thing falls apart. <laughs> and that's true about any system. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so like, I guess, I guess kind of to rephrase, my understanding of what Stronggate does is if I want to make sure that my computer never crashes, I duplicate it. The problem there is that like duplication requires consistency between those states. Otherwise, there's a chance that these two machines will make two different decisions on the Solana network about consensus. And if they do that and use the same key that defines what their economic security is, um, we will have to punish them because it means that what, what these two machines are doing is they're putting their economic kind of vote to do two different states of the network. And the whole point of blockchain and BFT systems is to be consistent, right? To only have one state eventually. Yes. Yeah, so another way to that I, that I th tend to think of it is um, if you think of the language of accountants, right? So the Solana blockchain is this, you can imagine it as this giant book. And the book has pages, each page um, contains like transactions, transactions, and each page appears every 400 milliseconds later. And so these pages are being continuously added to, the, the, to, to this book. That's the Solana, that's the Solana ledger. And the validators are the set of entities that are uh, collectively maintaining this, this book. And in order to maintain this book, we are effectively voting in some way. Solana has a very unique voting protocol. So effectively what the validators are trying to do is when a page is like somebody's trying to add a page to the book, all of the validators are voting on the page and they are sort of um, putting some, some form of capital behind their vote. And if 66% of the totals stake capital of the system is behind the behind the votes on a particular page um, that is considered final in some sense so as a validator what you ultimately want to prevent is so as a network what what do you want to prevent you want to prevent two pages which are qualitatively different existing at the book at the same place right so each page has to be unique 
So page number 700 has to be unique. There cannot be two pages number 700 in the book. And so that's what the network is trying to prevent. And in order to prevent that, the, um, the validators must effectively vote in a certain fashion. They, might, they must follow some form of voting rules. And these validators are effectively trying to vote while following all of these voting rules. And the typical problem is that we want to have two different servers that are able to vote, but how to make these two servers collaborate together to vote while collectively not violating any of these voting rules. That is the, that is yeah. the problem that I solve. So uh, what, what's funny is that like for the design of Stronggate, you need some form of consensus between just your nodes. And like fundamentally, why can't you use the Solana blockchain as the, as the point of, I guess, unification, if I think of it that way? Like why That's can't- That's kind of funny, yeah. Yeah, why, why can't we have a single point of consensus to, to make consensus work? <laughs> it's funny, right? Because like, I guess if you think about it from this perspective, if, if you think of any blockchain as a list of transactions that you want to attack, Every single attack is basically going to come down to how can I create an alternative list of transactions that benefits me? How can I trick the network into trusting a set of transactions that either makes me money or blocks transactions for somebody else? So anything that we can do that trusts that chain has to rely on the chain not being attacked. So let's say we want to have a high availability setup where we have two systems that are both observing the chain. And we want one of them, if it fails, to fall over to the other one. If we only rely on the network, we can only trust it as long as it is not being attacked. As soon as it's under attack, there is a possibility that we trust both of these logs of transactions. So the idea behind Stronggate is off-chain, we will communicate with all of the nodes that are part of the cluster. And if we observe some kind of strange behavior on the chain, then we'll do the consensus on, on how we'll fall over to another node based on what we observe at the two different sites. Does that make sense? That ma I mean, that makes sense to me. Like, uh, it, it's just <laughs> like, it, you have to kind of think about it. We're building this Byzantine fault-tolerant network and the consensus mechanism to create this BFD system cannot, it, that instance of that consensus mechanism, that particular network, itself cannot be used to maintain high availability between nodes inside of it. That we have these, like, this, it, it cannot be self-dependent, right? Self-defined. And maybe there's a mathematical proof there somewhere. There has to be. But that, to me, that's a very interesting observation out of this. And just to kind of reiterate, like, the reason why we want this is because we have a bunch of these validators, groups like Chorus One. Each one of them has their different failure points. They may all run systems that are very high available, but independently, you know, we wouldn't call Chorus One Byzantine fault tolerant. But if we combine all of these across the world and they're all geographically distributed and there's hundreds of thousands of them, we now have the system that cannot be hacked because you'd have to attack a very large group of nodes that are all high availability nodes with their own different orthogonal failure points. And putting all that together is what really makes a, this kind of world computer that cannot be hacked. 
So, I guess like one way I imagine it is, I mean, it, like, what's the? So we have this imagination of the Byzantine generals problem, right? Which is there's this city like Constantinople, and then there's a bunch of generals. Like maybe we can imagine them as Ottoman generals that are trying yeah. to attack this city. There's not one. There's let's say like two hundred generals. Each one has a small army. Now, in order for in order to take over these uh, Constantinople, these two hundred Ottoman generals must coordinate to attack at the same time. Right now, the twist we want to introduce is let's imagine let's zoom into one general. Right, so it's, let's say zoom into general number one hundred. That's Corus. Now, Corus says, well, I have I have my own army, but sort of I want to like split my army into like two sub armies so that if let's say one of like if i have two sub armies let's say you know some something happens to one of the sub armies the other sub army can still contribute to the attack like i want to like split my split my resources over two servers so so uh, the interesting thing is that you're not really splitting your resources you're you're almost like splitting the, your spies, right? If any one of the spies des decides that it's time to attack, then the army attacks. But what you're creating is, is a fault tolerance to where, you know, if one of your spies dies, that you're not disconnected from the rest of the armies, right? Yeah, we can maybe imagine it as like a chorus has an army and then there's a general, right? Instead of one general, we want to have two generals because if let's say one one general I don't know dies from dysentery or something, the second general can still <laughs> can still make the decision to attack. Right? Yep. But when once we introduce like for the hundredth general, so now the hundredth general is a pair of twins, right? So there's yep. uh, like you know like the, the hundredth general is now split into Ryzen and Meher. There's two generals for the hundredth general, two sub generals, and now. The problem becomes that when you want to commit the army to the attack, you want to commit in a way that there is no inconsistency between Meher and Ryzen. So when Ryzen the general says, hey, we're going to attack at 12, Meher also believes at that time that, hey, this army is going to attack, this, sub -ar this army, 100 army is going to attack at 12. And on the other side, if Meher were to commit to attacking at 12, Ryzen also knows that, hey, we are going to attack at 12. And they want to do this coordination with very high fidelity. Right? Correct. Now, now, the problem here is that you have one higher level coordination problem, which is the coordination problem of the 200 generals. And you have a second coordination problem, which is the coordination problem of Meher and Ryzen. Now, if Meher and if in order to solve Meher and Ryzen's coordination problem, they relied on some result from the from solving the coordination problem of those 200 generals, you can see that it's in some way like a snake eating its own tail, right? So the group of 200 generals, they can be failure modes for that group in some way. So if Meher and Ryzen are relying on the mechanism for coordinating those 200 generals, then if that bigger mechanism fails, then the smaller mechanism will end up failing. But if 
all of the generals have such smaller mechanisms all of the generals are split into two and all of them are lying on the bigger mechanism then you can imagine that they intuitively you can think that there will be some case where both the smaller mechanisms and the larger mechanism will fail at the same time yep yeah that is that is ultimately the problem <laughs> is that if, if you rely on the larger group to decide what your smaller group does then your smaller group cannot be the the decision maker into the larger group and there's always some point where 66 of the 100 you know big of the the major 100 generals 66 have decided to attack and you're the last one that decides whether we attack or not and meher decides no and rise and decides yes right and that that's really the failure point is when the, the whole system fails um, so what's kind of like let's kind of like follow that analogy why i'm really excited about strong gate is that sometimes you know these generals are sacking very small cities and sometimes it's constantinople right <laughs> and maybe maybe meher is like the the old retired general and he takes care of the smaller cities now and just kind of like he's the lazy general now so we we run meher when the uh, like during those small attacks and he kind of like just chills out and mostly you know just has a, a has a nice drink in his hand and then when it's time to attack Constantinople we need to switch to Ryzen and that failover needs to happen in such a way that when the larger group decides to attack during this failover that we don't lose any consistency so from my perspective like what that means for Solana is we're this no sharding right or is our whole stick that means that our computers to cover the maximum amount of transactions have to have the largest possible hardware we can allocate for them um but the reality is that like this kind of tps metrics for a single shard um they don't really mean anything because the steady state of any network is going to be very low even visa or somebody like that their peak capacity is like 70,000 but their steady state is under 5,000 for sure. That's a global payments network It's worldwide used all the time by people multiple times a day. So we need this peak capacity because the peak capacity is what decides price. When users pay a transaction fee, what they're paying for is how much of the capacity they're eating up and if it's like 99% still left, then the fees are going to be almost insignificant. but if we're at that point like you know with oil where supply meets demand that's when prices spike up 4 10 times um but we don't want to pay for this hardware all the time right so what we want is we want to run this cheapest possible system during steady state and then as soon as there is a spike in demand we dynamically fail over to the most expensive system and even though it's more expensive because we now have demand to pay for it it's actually extremely profitable to to run it. Yes. Yeah, this is um Go This is interesting because like the reason we first wanted to design this was for high high, high availability. So we would run two nodes pretty much 24/7 in you know perhaps cross atlantic. But the auto scaling description you have right now where we can run a low power node that that is capable of dealing with the majority of traffic but in these bursts we want to switch to something much more powerful in a really quick way it's actually a really fantastic way of doing it because the idea here is 
you run your node as if it is the only node on the network. And as soon as it's important to move to something more powerful, you know, the, like the, the general who's going to attack with the larger army, is you can prepare the node without having to worry about how you'll do the transition. And this tool will allow you to run both nodes at the same time without being worried about them both attacking at the same time. So you don't have Maher attack the city while the general's doing it and cross your paths and do everything wrong. So the idea here is you can have a kind of coordination without having to communicate using the network itself. And that problem of failover, it's the fundamental problem of, of Byzantine fault tolerance if yes. you have a consistent database. So my experience at Dropbox, my first pager duty, Master Slave failover and MySQL brought down Dropbox for like almost an hour. It, ate, it, ate, it basically ate our uh, entire like SLA for the year. Wait, how did that happen? <laughs> it's just some misconfiguration, right? There's always something like all these systems are, are so hard to build and maintain that there's always something that goes wrong every once in a while. Like during an upgrade, right? You move from version one to version yeah. two. Some configuration file needs to be updated, and it's like a very hard problem. So if if that falls over, you're basically like you know your entire business is at stake. Um, the failure points for this fallover are need to be such that, like, if it does fail, that you don't get slashed. It just you know failover yeah. fails, right? <laughs> so that that's that's. Yeah. That, that's kind of the, the critical part to it. So uh, if you were to do this by hand, you're always running the risk of potentially causing yourself to inadvertently get getting slashed. So you need software to, to do this coordination. It's funny, even with software, actually, it's, uh, it's I don't know if, I, if, like, if I'm going too technical, but even here is a problem, right? Like if you want to run two nodes and you don't have the same configuration across both, you run the risk where human error will start one before the other is ready. So one of the like real problems with this software that we had to like consider is how do you make sure that both nodes always see the same configuration? You know, you want, you want to make sure that one army is aware of what the other army would do in the worst case situation. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's very much that problem. Yeah. So for us, this is like kind of one of, one of the, you know, folks always tell me like, Oh, it's going to be too expensive to run a node. They don't really haven't thought this through because reality is that we can charge people price per transaction based on the average cost of the hardware. And if it's the lowest possible node for steady state, that means those fees are going to be super low and the capacity allows us to like onboard as many use cases as possible. To me, this is like, I kind of, you know, if I'm thinking of our network as like software as a service kind of thing, like we want to have the, the fastest, cheapest possible way to do blockchain stuff. And like Stronggate is like a critical piece because I think a lot of people want to end up running on some form of cloud, even internally, right? Like they will kind of use like within their internal co-located hardware, they will have a cloud-based setup. I mean, when you tweeted, so actually we were building high availability and Anatoly told us about this bigger application. We tend to think of this as, you know, the, the start of elastic validation. So today, like, what is a typical validator setup? You have basically like a, a huge over-provisioned server, right? So today, 
for example, our validation servers, they are running at maybe like you know five or six percent of capacity because the networks we are validating on just don't have those many transactions to use uh, our capacity. Yet you want to have server like that because you want the flexibility that as transactions come in or if network onboarding requests are coming in really fast, you don't have to spend time getting like a, a physical server. Because right now we are running these validators in, uh, in actually servers that we own. Now I think in the future, and then part of the reason we are running these validators on servers that we own is um, we do not have really good ways of having keys on, on cloud. Securely on, but in the future, um, validation is going to happen entirely on the cloud with keys on cloud. And on the cloud, you can fit the machine to your need, right? So if your need is high, you can have a bigger machine, and if your need is small, you can have a have a smaller machine. And so, in the future, validation will be elastic. So if a network is tiny, you your automation of assigns a very small machine or some capacity of a very small machine to, to, to that network. And suddenly if that network requires a lot of transactions, you can very quickly boost capacity. But if you want to boost capacity, you need some way to handle sort of that intermittent case where your smaller machine was working on the network, now a larger machine is able about to come online, but the small and the large machine must coordinate to make a smooth transition. And so it's this problem of deploying exactly the amount of computational resource that is needed by one network or by hundreds of networks at exactly the time when these resources are needed. That's what um, StrongGate solves. And which ultimately means that validators are very efficient with these resources. And if they're very efficient with these resources, then the users need to pay less per resource or per transaction. So that is the positive sum gain for the entire uh, user base. Yep. Validators spend less on the, the hardware costs and that should translate into cheaper fees for users and applications. Although just, just to kind of like do a little bit of Solana shilling, I don't think Elastic validation will be effective in a sharded system because adding shards dynamically is a much it's it's a much more difficult problem <laughs> that requires like a fundamental like uh, reconfiguration of consensus and I don't know if anyone's really working on this right now but I suspect you're bound by the like the latencies in the beacon in the beacon chain. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I guess like we are so, I, I personally, I'm so deep into Solana that I've actually never, we've actually never validated our sharded system, so I can't even, <laughs> even conceive, I can even conceive of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, that's interesting. I mean, like Tenderman is like uh, a really cool project because it allows people to just, I have consensus, I'll start building like just start moving very quickly um, and it's non-sharded it's a very simple consensus mechanism it works well enough I'm really impressed with how how much people have built on top of that 
and it doesn't do anything that's super complicated, right? <laughs> I kind of see like Solana as like a very like optimized to the hilt, but still Tendermint. Like actually the first paper that I read was the Tendermint white paper that I really read through because it was the first non-proof. It was really a proof of stake mechanism for consensus. Like, okay, how would, it, how would this actually work? And, and how, have, how have people succeeded? So Tendermint, I think, was really the first to, to get it done. I don't know if that's why like, we've been able to have, I think, more success in the Cosmos community than anywhere else, like with, with the validators, for sure. Yeah, so I, I think like in, in, in Tendermint, so at least like the All In Bits team um, approached approach the problem statement with the, still approaches the problem statement of building a scalable ledger or set of ledgers as there's going to be, there's going to be like different ledgers and these different ledgers will be specialized for certain things. So yep. you're going to have some ledger that does, let's say a novel protocol for decent, like for exchanges really well. You're going to have a different ledger that does transactions for social media really well. And you're going to have a third ledger that does some other DeFi app like Compound really well. So do you guys and, run, do you guys right now run all these deployments in the same hardware or are they in separate hardware? So right now our, our system is that we have, we have like a, a server we essentially own that has way more capacity than than is needed and we run validators for all of these different ledgers on that same piece of Got it. right and so it so tendermint is the idea that you know like there's this idea of like specialization right yeah. and like you know specialization is in, for insects and the tendermint is the idea that ledgers will will specialize into into their own own things Whereas Solana is the idea that there will be one ledger that will that will be general, it will be able to do anything, and that will scale to you know hundreds of thousands of transactions a second. So when you start to think of this specialized ledger world, it's fine if you ship a design which can do 200 transactions a second because an individual ledger might be only might only need to do, let's say, compound-like transactions. And if you're very honest, it's going to take like five years before a compound-like system is going to get like 200, 250. Yeah, yeah. So scaling is not their priority, right? Uh, their priority starts to become, how do you make these ledgers efficiently tunable for, for specific things? So that's the thing Tendermint has optimized for. Whereas in Solana, because like a single ledger has to do lots of different things. Just, Solana, to, give, rightly, just to give yeah. folks perspective, like a million monthly active users that do like three things a day on your network comes out to like, I think around 30 transactions per second. That's it, right? It's going to take, you need to get to these like 10 million monthly active users before you actually hit the limits of like a lot of these networks. Like these, like kind of, I guess, second gen networks. There are a few hundred transactions per second. Yes, and and so 
like someday someday tendermint chains will face the problem of going from 250 transactions a second to 2500 transactions a second but probably that day is at least 3 or 4 years ahead when the first tendermint chain will hit that barrier whereas in solana will probably hit that barrier like this like in 2020 and um, and so solana has has designed for for the problem statement where it has to do i don't know 10000 transactions like it has to be it has to be capable of 10 like i don't know 50000 transactions a second in the very early days so that it attracts all of these developers to build up yeah that's that's their kind of selling point and the tug of war there is between these this the expense of running these systems that if we require validators to have very expensive hardware we attract less fewer validators or and our system is less decentralized and the costs are higher for the users versus if we have like strong gate where validators can join and run very low cost systems but then automatically scale up to like AWS whenever they need to um and the there's still a lot of work from kind of on the technical side i think we need to get to a point where if you're doing this dynamic failover that you can still have this really high key security um and in the cloud that really means like trusting their sgx or their like hsms and programmatically failing you know migrating the keys into you know those hsms or or shifting the the signing basically authority from validator a to validator b um it'll it'll take still some time to build out and really work out um these are these are like uh tough computer science problems that over really i think like bft systems and building this byzantine fault tolerant computer that was science fiction when i went to school but it's really cool to actually work on it now <laughs> even now it's it's kind of mind blowing to see these systems work like to actually yeah. see these systems deployed now today yeah it's kind of weird yeah that uh we had like a lot of dry runs that fell over until the last one <laughs> yeah, uh, i mean the last one's got what like a uh, 9 days 8 days or something going now without any issues yeah yeah it went over a week and a half and we were trying to crash it using our uh ramp tps tool which is just spam the transactions um and we we discovered some bugs in like erasure coding and things like that that were hitting performance but uh consensus and everything was just rock solid and that was i think really the first time that i had confidence in like okay i think we solved all the major bugs now it's just the ta- really the tail end <laughs> and people underestimate like just the tail end of going from white paper to just an implementation is like the 90% of the work that you do there you can do that very quickly but then getting the network up and running and deployed and stable and covering every possible of thing that could go wrong that's going to take months i mean you're working with like inherently decentralized systems you have to be yeah. sure that every single one is yep not bug free that's not the right way to describe it but yeah. capable of handling those situations and it's yeah. an easy task in, in technology people usually talk about like 
like startups, tech, technology-focused startups, they focus on problems that maybe they have 10% chance of solving. Every time you add an additional problem that you need to solve to succeed, it means that you now have 0.1 times 0.1 chances of solving, right? It, it, it's, it uh, basically accumulates, the risk accumulates to the point where the likelihood of your failure becomes 100%. <laughs> if by definition, a technology startup will fail 90% of the time just working on one problem. Like we need to solve probably three hard computer science problems to, to, to deploy a new blockchain. So the, I think one in a thousand is really the, the likely outcome of, of uh, these kind of chains or companies surviving. When people like think about why are there so many layer ones, it's because my guess is probably like one of them <laughs> will, will survive. Just out of interest, like uh, when you describe this as like a situation where you have like, you have to survive three different computer science problems. Could you imagine Solana still working if you ditched one of them or two of them? Like, would it be something that could still succeed? I think, I don't know if it would be differentiable enough from Tendermint. Like that, that's kind of like, if, if you're, like we could have used hot stuff uh, or something like that um, and avoided some of the, like basically doing a bunch of research around history and figuring out that that's like an important enough piece to where we should base on top of it. I think maybe just building that in itself would have been kind of neat and cool for like a master's project, but making it sufficiently low latency and building out all the operating system kind of tooling to make the throughput high enough, right? Where we're able to scale up to a large number of cores and GPUs. I don't know if those are the, the hard problems in the sense that 90% of the attempts will fail because they're engineering problems. They just take a long time to get right. Just so in the way this like, yeah. This combination is like the leap that needs to be made. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like that's, that's like, I'm always wrestling with that. Do we need to solve this problem today? Like, is this like differentiable enough for us? <laughs> or do we solve it? Do we focus more on trying to get the more adoption and tooling for developers? This is like, I think the, the question everybody that's building a layer one should be asking themselves. Um, the, again, to give you some perspective, you know, all the networks together, you know, if it's 34 transactions per second, you need for a million monthly active users that do three things a day, right? Ethereum plus Bitcoin is what? Three plus four transactions, seven. <laughs> that's the, that's the monthly active users on these like major chains. But I mean, you're going for like a leap from that. Pulse like, tree, like from right? 100, like it's 50,000 right now with CPUs, right? It's not even. Yeah, with 32 core CPU machine, we can get up to 50,000 in our colo. Could you imagine oh. that being used in the first year? Like it's a, it's a hell it's... of a throughput. Um, I can't, I can't picture it personally. So what it gives us, yeah, what it gives us is this guarantee that we can charge, we can basically set the transaction fee to uh, $10 buys you a million transactions. So if you're building out a use case, you can like effectively not think about fees. Like if I'm building a product to users that uses a blockchain, I can run a gas station for them and just pay for all the fees behind the scenes, right? It becomes very trivial to do that. 
and you almost don't even care about whether they take like figure out a way to like Sybil attack that gas station, right? It's just like okay, who cares, <laughs> right? I'm I'm seeing growth, right? That's you can you can bet on growth, and I think what the space needs is the ability for startups to take risks and bet on growth and do things that are foolish and solve like those problems when they actually hit like scale, right? When they, when they start seeing growth and they're like, Oh man, you know, 40% of our like gas station requests are fraudulent and they start tweaking that. But like in this initial stage, you need to give companies the tools to just kind of run as fast as they can, because we don't know, like, I, I don't know what the best use cases are for blockchain. Like, Fundamentally, I think we we almost we've solved the tech problems. Now we have a business case problems. What is like the business proposition of any of the stuff, <laughs> right? Outside of being cool, right? Like it needs to have something that users depend on, where they have actual value coming to them. Um, and and what's the critical product? Like what right. is it actually used to blockchain? blockchain. And, it's impossible to predict what that is. So we need to allow people to take as many shots on goal as we can. So to me, it seems like we need to give them like, here's like all the capacity you can even think of. Build the dumbest possible implementation that inefficiently uses the chain and get it out as fast as you can and see if it succeeds. <laughs> and don't worry about it, <laughs> right? Like you can't do that with Ethereum because as soon as you do anything, you're paying Twenty, thirty thousand dollars a day in gas fees. If you had any kind of scale, like a hundred thousand daily active users, which is nothing for a Silicon Valley startup, would cripple an, a naive implementation of anything on Ethereum. Do you ever worry about like silly implementations being possible through this that would clock up clog up the network? Like as a silly example, if you want to store data on block, like on Bitcoin now, then the cost of putting like 10 kilobytes on Bitcoin is, is quite expensive, you know. But if you if you put the transaction fees low enough, you could use Solana as a storage or you could use it for some other kind of usage that isn't really necessarily well, useful, but high throughput. You can't really store it for large amounts of data. Cause, so we charge like one cent a megabyte a day, right? Which is, I think, a thousand times cheaper than Ethereum. But it's still like a thousand times probably 10,000 times more expensive than AWS, right? S3. <laughs> uh, it's enough to where if you're writing programs and contracts, you don't care about memory. But if you start dumping, you know, using it as general purpose file storage, you'll quickly start paying absurd amounts of money. So in that sense, like, I think we're at the right price point um, for these systems, which is the price point of hardware, right? Like, Again, like our whole premise is let's make sure that the software doesn't get in the way of the hardware. That means that if we start filling up memory, you guys can go to Fry's and buy like four terabytes worth of ridiculously high performance SSDs for like a two thousand bucks at most. <laughs> like when CryptoKitties have it was having the spike, why didn't like the eleven mining pools that control three nines of hash power go buy more <laughs> more CPUs, <laughs> right? That That's ridiculous. That, that, that didn't happen. So in that, in that sense, I, I feel like we, we need to, to have systems that just don't, that can make businesses that build on top of them and in the end, users just not care about price. 
That makes sense. I guess once you eliminate the tech problems, it becomes a game theory problem. Yeah. The tech problem. Yeah. I mean, we need like we need startups that are creative that take these things and then start building in- interesting products. Like I love I love Compound and Dai and kind of the whole DeFi ecosystem. I think is a kernel of that. Like there's like things that people are building in DeFi that could potentially be the killer app. I personally think the the killer app of um, of blockchains is already there. It's just it's, it's these innovative market mechanisms. So like Uniswap is an entirely new way to do exchange. And it's not just Uniswap. There are there are other mechanisms like diffusion and zero X that are yeah. very unique exchanges. SET is a very unique way to do asset management on a blockchain. Um, there's another microtech, which is a very unique way to do price discovery on, on blockchain. So I think the evidence is there that there is something about the blockchain construct, which enables the invention of market mechanisms that hitherto did not exist. And somewhere in that large space of market mechanisms are the ones that are going to kill NYSE, NASDAQ, the Vanguards, the NYSEs, the NASDAQs yeah. of the world. And I think that blockchain technology will will be mainstream on the back of these of these mechanisms. But all of these things ultimately need millions of transactions a second. The, the question is, do they need it at the end state or do they need it in this growth state? Like our thesis is that I think they need it in the growth state because they they can be less efficient in what they're doing. But they, the companies that, that like use us and just kind of go faster and don't worry about this, like they'll be able to get to growth faster um, versus just I betting mean, on like yeah. sometime in 10 years from now, people are going to want Solana. The, the reality of that thesis is that if the growth is slow, then when Tendermint hits capacity, you guys are smart engineers. You'll be like, okay, let's do the next set of optimizations and double it. So I, I feel, um, I guess like Solana's bullish case is the one which you've mentioned in which these startups actually need all that capacity today. But then another bullish case is is often like, I think it was like Theodore Roosevelt, right? Who said like, you know, talk softly, but carry a big stick. <laughs> RTPS is a big stick. <laughs> the, the Silicon Valley incarnation of Theodore Roosevelt is in an emerging market, put so much money into the leading company that others dare not compete. Uh, you, if you find, I don't know, the Uber for dog walking wag, put some absurd amount of money, $500 million into wag. So nobody else dares to build a competitor to wag and then wag wins. That's how, that's how an E16Z will think, right? And I think Solana is Theodore Roosevelt applied to blockchain scalability. To all the developers, what Solana seems to say is, come to the blockchain that, that carries the big stick. <laughs> if, 
They might never need the big city. They might need it five years later, but they might end up coming just for the peace of mind that there is a big city. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, cool. Well, um, this has been a super fun conversation. It's awesome to have you guys. Do you guys want to maybe plug Chorus One or or anything else that you guys are doing that people can go and discover? Uh, Ryzen, you go first. And then I'll go second. I mean, yeah, I think uh, I think one thing that we're doing that's that's quite interesting is we're quite focused on the actual tech on different blockchains. And at least for Solana, the tech is so interesting that there are so many ap applications that I don't even know where to start. But I mean, if you if you're looking for where to look to see, you know, where tech's going, I hope this kind of combination works for it as a partnership, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So, um, like, because this is meant to be a plug section, so, like, Chorus, like, our main bread and butter is to, is to run the validators and build validation infrastructure. But we often think about, like, what is around the corner in the validation industry. And so, um, one of the problems that we we find quite fascinating is the problem of, I think these are two problems. So one problem, and they have similar solutions. I think they have the same solution. One problem is the reutilization of capital problem, which is you have a chain like Solana, $2 billion in value, $1.5 billion in value would be locked up, delegated to various validators. You'll add $1.5 billion we use just for that role. It, in the start, yes, but in the future, Solana were to be massively successful, you would want to use all of the soul that are locked up and staking in other in other applications as well. Right? So you might want your soul to stake as well as to print a stable coin. And um, how do you allow the state soul to be, you know, multi-use? And this is this is one problem we uh, we're working on. We have we have obtained a grant um, from uh, Interchain Foundation to essentially explore this uh, problem statement and make some policy recommendations for uh, blockchains like Solana. Um, I think the hard part about this problem is it's not a difficult technical problem, it's an interesting regulatory problem because whatever mechanism you want to devise to reuse the soul, they must avoid security, <laughs> they, must be, they must be friendly from the perspective of security regulations, FinCEN regulations, ABCDE, designing that kind of mechanism is fascinating challenge that we I think the second problem that that I think is extent for proof of stake is in some ways proof of stake is a very asymmetric battlefield. Um, in proof of stake, uh, like voting power is are these tokens, and naturally tokens aggregate at exchanges. Exchanges have 
huge stash of tokens via the trading activities. Um, and so exchanges start off at a very dominant position in, in proof of stake. The other advantage exchanges have is often exchanges can produce products which allow you to trade, let's say, staked soul versus US dollars. They make money on the trading fees and they don't need to make money on the validation. Therefore, their validation can be priced at zero and they make money on trading fees. Whereas like normal validators like Chorus or you know, the hundreds of validators out there don't have an option similar to that. So sometimes it almost feels like it's a battlefield where you know like we are fighting with pistols and the opposite side has a rocket launcher. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> well I I think that yeah and I I agree with you. And I think the solution to this is really like pushing for a hundred percent slashing to where that the Exchanges cannot take all their users' assets and risk them on one system and one and one one set of people. But they will actually want to offer their users options to stake through the exchange to correspond or whoever, right? Like I, I think that they would want to pass on those risks to the users. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm actually really excited about the Solana hundred percent slashing, I'd call it an experiment. We're not, um, not going to get there right away. It's going to be a slow process because for us to really want to do that, we need to be sure that there aren't any attack vectors that could cause an, an, a no to get 100% slashed unintentionally. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like, yeah, Solana's solution remains one of the practical workable solutions we can see. Um, but yeah, in general, in general, it feels like a fundamental problem of, uh, of proof of stake. If 100% slashing can't address it, then I'm not sure what will. Maybe the problem of reutilization of capital and, um, and these are also connected. And in some ways, if you could tokenize uh, staked assets and you could you could create a, a, a token that represents a delegation to multiple validators and it's and is liquid. You could use it in DeFi, and you could trade it on decentralized exchanges. Then probably you could have a way of both leveling the battlefield for validators and exchanges, as well as uh, enabling reutilization of capital. So we are searching for that elusive El Dorado um, <laughs> yeah. solution which would allow us to do that. It's like it's a, it's it's a tricky problem with with a lot of depth, and we don't have a, a great solution to propose to the world today. Cool. Well, on that note, um, it's been amazing to have you guys, um, and it's been amazing for us to work with you. Like as the Solana team, we've been working with you guys for a few months, or maybe almost a year now, um, and just been uh, like really good positive feedback and kind of back and forth on technical problems and issues. And you guys building strong gate, um, I think, is a really fundamental tool that we need in like when we hit those real scaling problems when we need to 
double the number of validators and have this like high capacity um, requirements as well. So I'm really excited about everything that you guys are doing. All right. Thank you for having yeah. us here. Yeah, thank you. Also, I think it's worth uh, saying congratulations yeah. on having a stable DR. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're, we're proud. <laughs> we, we're still not ready to pop the champagne, but uh, yeah, it's, it's like almost there. And you know, like, congratulations on taking not one, not two, but like seven big technical risks, yeah. decisions, mashing <laughs> them together and building a jet engine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, we're, we're super excited for the next phase. Well, cool. Thank you guys. Thank you for having us. Uh, take care. Thank you.